Well, we have been joining the Israelites in this wilderness journey, and uh, we have seen already some highs and some lows, and today we will start with the highest of highs for the Israelites. If you've been reading ahead at all, you know at the end of chapter 10, the cloud above them moves, and God is setting out, that is, that He is leading His people towards the promised land. They are moving away from Sinai. The journey has finally begun. All of the logistics are handled. And it's quite a beautiful scene if you read it. It's almost full of pageantry. Israel is all stood up and and, uh, lined up exactly as they're supposed to be with the the tabernacle in the center. And as they move, the Ark of the Covenant goes out. Uh, Everything is just as it's supposed to be. And the Israelites are optimistic as they should be. And Moses is on the highest of highs. In fact, he's trying to get everyone to come with him. All of his uh, extended family, specifically his brother-in-law. He's speaking uh, emphatically about the promise that awaits them. It is glorious. So glorious that if you've ever read much of the Bible before, you, like me, are waiting for the other shoe to drop. And in chapter 11, it drops. Have you ever been uh, off for a great vacation or a wonderful trip and everything is set and you're ready to go and then just a couple moments into the trip, something goes haywire? Either it's a kid in the back who, uh, back of the car who things are awry or it's a plane who because of weather or stuff that's happening in your destination has to sit uh, on the runway for a while or it's a a check engine light that pops up in your car and you know how incredibly frustrating it is when everything gets off on the right foot and then quickly goes south. What we find out for the Israelites is this pomp and circumstance, this great high of going off, following God to His promised land lasts all of three days. And all of a sudden, it takes a massive detour. In chapter 11, we're introduced to the common Israelite problem and, quite frankly, the common human problem of grumbling. So if you are free from grumbling, feel free to take the rest of the morning off. Uh, We won't judge you. We'll just know you haven't fully understood yourself if you leave, right? Because we are all chronic grumblers, and we need to come to grips with that as we consider what's going on here with Israel. And so in chapter 11, we find that there are two instances of grumbling. The first one is talked about very quickly, and then the second one is talked about at length, uh, almost as if the author is trying to sort of show the, the increasing spread of this problem and the increasing intensity of this problem, and using the second one to really define the issues at stake when it comes to grumbling. So, Numbers chapter 11. This is what the author writes. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. Uh, That's an important distinction there, right? It's not that they complained to the Lord about their hardships, but they complained in His hearing, which... Evidently is, or not evidently, but obviously is everywhere. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. 
Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. And when the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So that place was called Taborah, which literally in Hebrew means burning, because fire from the Lord had burned amongst them. Now think about this for a moment, right? They're only three days into the journey, but we can't make light of this journey, otherwise we're not being contextually honest. The truth of the matter is, these first three days were incredibly hard, challenging, difficult. The desert and the wilderness just outside Sinai that they were now going through was unforgivable and almost destitute. It was hard. We often will look at this and think, oh, these Israelites. God did all these things for them, and now they're grumbling. Well, this was particularly challenging, and they are grumbling. And God hears it, and it says it arouses his anger. And we have to deal with this, right? Why is God angry? He's angry, I think, for two reasons here, and I don't want to get too deep because we'll talk about this in a second. One is that they didn't bring the issue to him, but they talked about it amongst themselves and complained about it to each other, and it spread like crazy. And the other is they had basically dismissed all that God had done and had promised to do and focused just on the moment. And fire comes down. Uh, I think it's fair to believe that no one is killed in this. It's just a symbolic sort of on the outskirts of the camp, fire, as if God's saying, I'm here, <laughs> and almost a separation between he and they. The text tells us Moses intercedes and the fire is extinguished and the people continue. But somehow, it doesn't alleviate their grumbling. So let's read it, verse 4. The rabble who was with them, so apparently there's a, right, there's a bad section of town, uh, within the camp of the Israelites that is called the rabble. The rabble that was with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing <laughs> and said, if only we had meat to eat. Now listen, we get this, right? Let's, again, let's not be quick to judge the Israelites. If you were subsisting on a daily diet of manna, you would probably want some meat to eat too, is my guess, right? Wailing? I don't know, but they're wailing. Uh, it says, if only we'd meet to eat. Verse 5, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. And we remember the cucumbers. Like, it has gotten this bad that they're longing for cucumbers. Now, I like cucumbers, but I don't know. And the melons. Now, listen, it gets even worse. And the leeks. Who longs for leeks? Most of us don't even know what a leek is, right? Onions and the garlic. But now, now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Can you get in their shoes for a minute? You've been in that situation, right? I never see anything but this. The manna, there's a little uh, aside here where the author wants us to know the manna wasn't that bad. Right? Uh, I'm not sure he convinces us, but let's read anyway. The manna was like coriander seed, and it looked like resin. The people went around gathering it and then ground it, in a hand mill and crushed it in a mortar. They looked at it in a pot. They cooked, excuse me, looked at it. They cooked it in a pot or they made it into loaves. It tasted like something made with olive oil. 
That's interesting, isn't it? It doesn't taste like something good made with olive oil, but it tastes like something made with olive oil, right? When the dew settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. So is the manna an incredible provision from God? For certain it is. Is it the greatest thing ever? For certain it is not, right? And I think, you know, longing for some good protein makes a whole lot of sense in this situation. Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance of their tents. Can you picture this? Can you even picture this? Every family wailing in their tents, right? If we're to believe the author, between 1.6 and 2 million people, every family wailing at their tents, and Moses is trying to lead these people. Can you imagine this? The Lord again becomes exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. Yes, I suppose he was. He asked the Lord, why have you brought this trouble on me? What have I done to displease you so that you put this burden of all these people on me? He goes on all the way to the end. He says, listen, if I have not found favor in your eyes, can you just kill me now? Because I can't deal with 1.6 million people wailing over manna. Incredible. Well, Once again, I think the Israelites have found themselves in real and legitimate struggle, right? It's so easy for us thousands of years later to look back and say, what a bunch of losers. How could they grumble over this? And yet, I think this would be particularly challenging for us to be eating this kinds of food day in and day out. Uh, I happened to find myself in Tennessee a number of years ago on a trip with a, with a couple of friends that we were down there for a conference in Memphis and looking for something to do. And we didn't know anything to do in Memphis, and so we went on a tour of Graceland, Elvis's home. And if you ever have the idea of going on a tour of Graceland, my suggestion would be to you, don't bother. It's actually incredibly sad. There are actually people there, much like the Israelites, literally wailing at the tomb of Elvis. But that's not why I tell the story. One of the things the tour guide told us is that Elvis liked to eat the same thing over and over again. So literally for four or five months, he had meatloaf for dinner every single night. Now maybe that appeals to you, but not so much to me. Although I would totally choose meatloaf over manna, right? So let's just be honest for a minute. The Israelites, this is hard. This is challenging. This is difficult. But what's going on here is something deeper than just acknowledging the difficulties of life. Because now they're actually turning towards slavery rather than embracing God's provision. And ultimately what we'll see is that Moses is so overcome that his ministry of intercession is paused. Let's say it that way. And God decides He's going to give these people exactly what they want. And in many ways, this is judgment. He says, I'm going to give you meat to eat. You're going to eat quail. Again, I'm not sure that's a great upgrade, but hey, it's meat. And He says, you're going to have so much of it, it's going to come out your nostrils, right? So is God sarcastic? Maybe. That kind of makes me like Him a little bit better. Uh, Or is He spiteful? I don't think that's at all what's going on here. What actually is happening is God saying, Listen, if you want to choose your own direction, then choose your own direction. Or you can follow me. 
So we need to pause, and we need to try to figure some things out together. What exactly is going on with this grumbling? Because it seems to be a mixed bag of real, honest, difficult circumstances, but yet God getting really angry with people. Is that what he does? When our life is hard, he just gets angry at us over it? I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think that's how we can read this. We need to think a little bit deeper to understand it. And so let's pause and try to make some points of reference. The first thing that we need to understand is that the issue of grumbling is always sourced in personal entitlement. The issue of grumbling is always sourced in personal entitlement. Entitlement, of course, is what I think I deserve. And there are any number of reasons I think I deserve it. Perhaps I deserve it because I'm born into something. And therefore, I deserve it. I deserve uh, an inheritance. I deserve, as an American, all of these things that we think every American should have. I deserve... Uh, as a, a middle-class person, all of these things that we think we should have, right, because of birth. And you might say, well, hold on, there's anything about birth. What about status? Is another reason that we tap into entitlement, isn't it? I am this kind of person. I have this role. I have this title. Therefore, I'm entitled to these things. Or maybe you say, it's not about status. It's not about birth. I wouldn't clamor for things because of that. Here's a major area where entitlement takes hold in our life. It's by merit, right? What we think we've earned by what we've done. Either previous sacrifices or current holiness or spiritual disciplines. That is that whether by birth or by status or by merit or some other thing, entitlement creeps into our lives unannounced all the time, every moment of our existence, and it will always give birth to grumbling. Because if you know anything about grumbling and anything about entitlement, you know that what you believe you are entitled to, you never actually have full possession of, and therefore, there is never contentment. And there is always these seeds of grumbling. You say, well, that's fine, Adam, but, but you said these, this, the struggles these people were going through were real and we shouldn't minimize them and push them off and just criticize the Israelites, and I think that's exactly right. So what's the difference then? What's the difference between grumbling and dealing with difficult circumstances? And I think there actually is an important and profound distinction, and perhaps it's the most important thing that we'll talk about this morning. It's something we really need to hold on to deeply. That is that you will find throughout the Scriptures numerous times where people come to God and seemingly complain about their circumstances and He doesn't either burn their camp or stuff their nostrils with quail, right? So what's the difference? What's the difference? And here's where I think we need to make an important distinction. That is that what we do with our struggle or suffering speaks to what is actually going on within us. Or, better yet, what God we are actually serving. See this? And so there are two different biblical responses to really sucky streaks in life. If I can just be crass for a moment. The first is grumbling. 
and it leads to destruction. But the second is what the, the, the Bible writers call lamenting. And lamenting is a lost art in our day. We don't know how to do it because we never talk about it. It's never part of our prayer life. We're so used to trying to just put on happy faces and not actually tell the truth about how difficult our current circumstances are that we've lost the art of lamentation. And yet, all through the Old Testament, and I would suggest to you, even into the New Testament, this idea of lamentation is distinct and powerful in the midst of the people of God. And lamentation works this way. You come not in the hearing of God, but to God. You see the distinction, right? I'm not coming to you, though we can talk about our struggles with each other, but primarily I'm directed towards God because even in my struggles, even in my frustration, and even possibly in my anger with God, all of which are legit, I'm still acting in submission to God by coming to Him rather than talking about Him. You see this? Pretty distinct and perhaps critically important. But when you come to God, you are just as honest as the Israelites were, right? I mean, read the Psalms for crying out loud. It sounds like the Israelites, and yet it's King David, this person we put on a high pedestal, constantly talking about how difficult, challenging, hard his life is, saying things like he feels like he's going to die, like the ocean is rising up around him, like he's drowning, like he's stuck in miry clay. This sounds like grumbling, and yet God doesn't respond that way. Why? Because in lamentation, what happens is you are honest with God, but you place yourself within God's direction. Rather than asking God to put you in your preferred direction. And if you read the Psalms carefully, you will see this constantly. Where David or the psalmist come to God, they're honest about their situation, sometimes like awkwardly honest, right? We read it and we cringe, like, did he really just say that? He's like, God, I need you to kill all of these people around me because I hate them, right? Things like that. It's awkward. It's weird We don't because we don't know how to do this lamentation stuff anymore. He comes to it. He gets it off his chest. He's honest with God, but then he breathes. And he remembers who God is and what God has done. What I would call the glory of God. He basks in the glory of God even in the challenges of his circumstance. And then almost universally, something crazy happens by the end of the psalm. What started out with dire circumstances moves to worship of God. But let me let us all in on a secret. Nothing about the circumstances actually changed. His perspective has. Why? Because he's come to God, and he's been honest with God, and he's allowed God to receive him as he is. And somehow, in imperfect but true faith, he's placed himself in God's hands. That's why in the same psalm, David can say, I'm going to die, but also say, God, you're a perfect shield all around me. Those two things don't, like, they're diametrically opposed. And yet, you start one way and you finish another way. It's quite frankly how the Apostle Paul, though he doesn't write about the journey uh, specifically, 
can get to the place where he's imprisoned, beaten, chained, and still end up by rejoicing or singing hymns in a Philippian prison, right? It doesn't just happen like that. It happens through the process of lamentation where we're honest with God and put stuff before Him and actively choose to see His glory and to place our life in His protective hands. Knowing full well, David, Paul, that circumstances probably, probably are not going to change. And that in all likelihood, tomorrow... I'm going to need to do this whole lamenting thing all over again, right? Because we're human. But in lamentation, we see the incredible grace of God that says, come to me, Jesus, most perfectly, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest, right? Now, has your experience been different than mine? That does not typically mean he abracadabras your circumstances, It means you taste deeply in the glory and the presence of God and therefore you willingly once again realign to the mission of God. This is what lamentation does for us. And it's all through the Scriptures. So no one is saying to the Israelites, fuck up and eat the manna. It's good. You should like that, right? Same thing people try to tell us about kale all the time. It actually is terrible. Let's just be honest with it. It might be good for you, but it's horrible. Stop talking about coriander seeds. You could bake it and it tastes like something made with olive oil. No, it stinks, right? And it's not the best. But look what God has done. Look where you're going and look that God is with you. And suddenly things begin to change within your heart. But if lamentation is what I would call an upward spiral to worship, grumbling is what I would call a downward spiral to self-worship. And we see the downward spiral particularly in this second instance that is kind of opened up broadly for us. Because it starts with entitlement and it quickly moves to what I would call the shifting of perspective. That is our perspective, the Israelites' perspective is no longer on the glory, the presence, and the mission of God. It's now on their cravings and their comfort. What happens after this second bout of grumbling is that God not only fills their nostrils with quail, uh, but also a plague of sorts happens in the camp, and people die. And the place becomes known as Kibruth Hata'ava, which in Hebrew means graves of craving. Because craving leads to destruction. You see this? I should say... Craving the wrong things leads to destruction. Their perspectives had changed. What had started just three days earlier with great pomp and circumstance as a journey that would be difficult but would lead them to God's promise had now in their perspective become a journey that was certain to lead to their destruction. You see this? You see how things have changed? And the food that they were eating had changed from a symbol and tangible expression of God's provision. You might remember in Exodus 16, God had already given them manna to show them provision, and He'd already given them quail. They already knew He could do more than that if they would 
come in the right way, right? And they saw this and rejoiced in this as a God of provision. And there it was every single day with the dew. It was there. It was demonstrating God's faithfulness. But it wasn't the greatest tasting thing. Let's just be honest, right? And so what used to be a perspective of food symbolizing the provision and presence of God now became food that symbolized to them the lack of care of God. Ever felt that in your personal life? It seems like God doesn't care anymore. might be an issue of perspective. Their perspective had radically changed. Why is it that in the troubles and the struggles and the difficulties of life, it is so easy for us to either ignore or even worse, despise the current gifts of God. It's in this reality that we understand that grumbling at its core is always and ultimately directed at God alone. But it's not just shifting perspectives. The spiral keeps going farther downward. And it leads to this sort of incredible reality of, what I I have no other word to call it except exaggeration. If you've been with someone who's like really really consumed with grumbling in that moment, you understand that this is the next phase of it. Because things like everything's the worst all of a sudden, right? You see exaggeration happens in two ways for the Israelites. It happens in two ways for us too. And the first way is we exaggerate about our current experience. So listen to the Israelites' words. All I see is manna. Now, that's not possibly true, right? <laughs> but this is the experience they're processing life through. And then something just like, again, how could they say something like this when they're complaining about food? They say, we've lost our appetites. Well, then why are you grumbling about food? If you're not hungry, why are you so concerned about food, right? But they're so consumed with this new perspective that it has led them to all these irrational exaggerations that are now really consuming their lives and really pushing them in the wrong direction. What's more, it's not just exaggerating about current conditions. It's also exaggerating about past circumstances. Did you catch this? Remember when we could eat that beautiful cucumber and the leeks and the onions and the garlics. We had incredible fish dinners back in Egypt. You were in slavery in Egypt. And suddenly now you remember Egypt as a great spot to have a great meal. This is ridiculous. But when you're in the midst of it, when you're in the throes of it, you can't see that, can you? Because this is just flying around and it's the grumbling, it's spinning around inside of you. The exaggeration is growing so much so that they are mistaking slavery for true life. They have called what God rightly called slavery, they are now recognizing as free food. This is crazy. And then, when grumbling is fully unleashed, it becomes the world's greatest contagion. Now, we have spent the last year dealing globally with the issue of COVID-19. I am no uh, immunologist. I am not a doctor. But my guess is that grumbling is actually far more contagious 
than not only COVID-19, but any known virus in our world. And so you have it starting with the rabble, right? Whoever they were. And all of a sudden, by the time Moses finds out, every single family is wailing at their tents the same thing. Why? Because it is incredibly infectious. It is not just a personal issue. It is a community crippler. And this is part of the reason God deals with it so intensely. It's the downward spiral of grumbling. And grumbling, we note, leads to destruction. What I think is better termed separation from God. Because I think that's actually what's happening here. God's like, do you want to be with the quail or do you want to be with me? Do I need to put a wall of fire between us? Like, what's going, does it have to be this way again? Right? So the wall of fire almost reminds us of the garden, right? When Adam and Eve chose their own way and God sets guards with fire at the entrance to the garden. It's not God necessarily showing off his power and just being really ticked and angry at everyone. It's basically saying, I'm not going to hold you. I'm not going to keep you. I'm not going to force you. Forced love is rape. It's not true love. And he's releasing them, even if to their own destruction. Psalm 106 comments on this reality to show us. That grumbling starts with entitlement and leads to full separation from God unless there's a mediator. Last week we started to realize that the wilderness is an appropriate analogy for our current existence. And the New Testament picks up on this time and time again. In fact, Paul, the Apostle Paul in writing to the Corinthians picks up on it in a huge way in chapter 10 of his first uh, recorded letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And he's warning the people that they should take notice of the history of God's people lest they fall into the same traps in this journey in the wilderness called life. As modern readers, it's really easy to read these stories in the Old Testament and say, I wouldn't have done that. I mean, I might have been frustrated, but I wouldn't have done that. I mean, after all, God showed them all these incredible things. He did all these incredible deliverance. They saw the plagues. They saw the Red Sea part. They saw the manna show up every day. They should have never responded this way. I wouldn't do that. What a self-serving way to read this passage of Scripture. Paul actually tells us to read it very differently. If they, in fact, did see all of that and still did this, how much more prone are you and I who didn't live that very same journey? If it only took them three days, how long would it take us? Three seconds, right? We've read about the Red Sea. We didn't live it. And so Paul rightly says, be very careful lest you fall into the same trap in this wilderness journey that we call life. And so I think it's right, church, that we pause this morning, not publicly, but personally, 
and begin to do an assessment of the current state of our lives. How much has grumbling taken root in your life? Remember, I'm not talking about you being honest about difficult situations in life. Some have it more difficult than others. Some will have it more difficult than others, right? This is how life works. We don't fully understand it. It's challenging. It's right for you to to be angry. It's right for you to be frustrated. It's right for you to struggle. It's right for you to, to find friends who you can be honest with. And it's certainly right for you to go to God and be incredibly honest with Him. But saying that, let me ask, just how much has grumbling taken root in your life? And listen, we grumble over any number of things. I grumble over the existence of births in our world, right? We've been through this a number of times. And yet, let me tell you a new story. You know how much I dislike birds, correct? It's true, I do. I dislike all birds except eagles, and there's particular reasons for that. And yet, birds continue to torment me every day of my life. And so do you know, like, I finally, ha- finally have, uh, we've moved recently, and I, there's a room in our, in our house that's dedicated to my office, like a workspace for myself, and I'm loving every minute of it and cherishing it. And do you know what has just happened two weeks ago? Two tiny little birds have taken residence in the tree outside the window of my office. And all day, literally, and some of you have been on the phone or Zoom calls with me, so you've heard this and you've seen it. All day they come to the window right by my face and they peck on the window all day long. Now, this should tell you two things. One, birds are the worst, right? And two, birds are really stupid. Like, at some point you should know you're not making it in or there's nothing there for you. And yet, all day long. If you don't believe me, I have recordings on my phone. I'll show you (laughs) afterwards, right? We grumble about goofy things like that, for sure. But we grumble about really big things that we actually have reason to be challenged by. There's been a whole lot of grumbling because of this last political cycle that continues to this moment. And let's just name the elephant in the room. Has COVID-19 so taken root in you that you are now a chronic grumbler because of it? My guess is, at some level, yes. Unless you're far greater than me, right? Many of you are, so it's possible. So let's just take an assessment for a moment and just ask some questions and let's think together, not out loud, just in your hearts. How has your perspective shifted in the midst of this pandemic or in the midst of this political cycle or in the midst of a certain particular challenge that you're facing in your life right now? How has your perspective shifted? How has it moved off of the glory of God Right? What he has done, who he is and what he has done. How's it shifted off the presence of God? That it's difficult, but he's with me. How's it shifted off the mission of God? That God actually has called you to something in this life, even in the midst of struggle. How's your perspective shifted off those three things, which should, in, the per, in our perfect utopian world, that's where our perspective should be all the time. I get it, it's not, right? 
How has it shifted off those things and shifted subtly over time towards your personal cravings and comfort? How's that happen? I mean, just be honest. And then how have you experienced the presence of exaggeration in the midst of this grumbling? How have you taken the current circumstances of this struggle and of life in general and unknowingly even added on to them things that aren't actually true? How have you been guilty of saying, all I see is manna? Basically what they're saying then is, I don't see anything good from God. Nothing. I just see this thing that's really frustrating me. Or how have you said to God, I've lost my appetite for you? I mean, just be honest. And how have you exaggerated the past circumstances? What life was like before these things? Listen, it in many ways probably was better, right? If you're going through a difficult time, it was better. Like, I liked the world better when I didn't have to wear a mask. I just did, you know? Or when I didn't have to wash my hands 17 times a day. Or learn to sing 30-second songs while I washed my hands so I was doing it sufficiently, right? Like, I can grumble. Listen, no one can grumble better than me, right? You're getting that already, right? How have you begun to exaggerate about what it used to be like? How are you remembering cucumbers for more than they actually are, right? How are you glamorizing leeks and onions and garlic? Let's just be honest, right? You need to be honest. How are you turning slavery into free food? How is it that we are so talented at misunderstanding and misidentifying slavery and embracing it as if it was true life. Let me be honest. Assess yourself. How has that been true? And then, listen, I, I don't like to preach sermons like this at these moments where I'm, I feels like I'm going after you because I'm not. I'm going after myself. And this next one is really painful for me. Because someone asked me, uh, in fact, the, the superintendent of our district, basically, you know, the pastor of the whole eastern Pennsylvania district of the Christian Missionary Alliance, he said, what has been your greatest takeaway from this COVID-19 experience? And my answer, before I could think it through, though I think if I thought it through, I'd come with the same answer, I just might not have been as um, willing to say it. <laughs> my answer was, just how disappointed I am with Christians, myself foremost. How has your grumbling led you to infect others? Again, I don't say that to take a jab at you or, or me, but in this COVID-19 experience, what has been the testimony of the church? Entitlement? Or God's glory? God's presence? 
for God's mission. In this political season, what has been the testimony of the church? Comfort? Cravings? Entitlement? For God's glory. God's presence. God's mission. I'm terrified that I and the church, capital C, have been more prolific at infecting people with grumbling through our entitlement than pointing people towards the glory of God with the gospel. I'm not condemning you or saying you've done that. I'm just trying to make an assessment. I'm just trying to be honest. I'm trying to be honest about myself. Have we become a contagion for the world? How has your grumbling led you to be a contagion? Would you just be honest? And then we need to ask, and I know I've already given the answer, but you need to ask personally, okay, I've been honest about these things. Where do they actually come from? And you need to be honest with yourself. They come from entitlement. What I think I deserve is not what I'm currently experiencing. And then at the core we see that every grumble has its root in grabbing for the rule and reign of God for ourselves. Every grumble is an attack at the good and righteous rule and reign of God over us. Every grumble is a grabbing for the apple from the tree in the garden. That grumbling is an affront to the gospel of Jesus. And it leads to our separation from God. If not holistically, then temporarily. You felt it sometimes in your life. Unless, unless there really is a God appointed mediator for his people. The people grumbled and fire came down, but Moses mediated and fire left. The people grumbled about the food. And Moses was overcome, and he failed to mediate, and God's destruction came. Maybe more than anything, this chapter is pointing us to the reality that we actually need a better mediator than Moses. Someone who doesn't say, just kill me, but who says, if your plan demands, I submit even my own life to you. Don't you see it? This is the gospel. The gospel that our very grumbling is an affront to. That God has loved you so very much that he not only sings songs over you from heaven, but also in the person and work of Jesus has entered into this very mess that we call the wilderness or life.
And that in Jesus, we have a far greater representative than Moses who willingly submits himself to the glory, the presence, and the mission of God. So much so that he willingly sets aside the very thing he's entitled to. Philippians chapter 2. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped tightly. He was entitled to it. And he set it aside. And lives fully into submission to God. Even so much that when he's led into temptation in the wilderness, one of the temptations brought before him is what? You're hungry, aren't you? Make yourself some bread. Jesus said, I will not make a meal for myself. But I will be nourished by the word of God. And that is far more a statement about dwelling in the glory of God than it is about memorizing Bible verses, even as good as memorizing Bible verses. And it's in that moment that we should become certain that Jesus is going to take this mission all the way to its fulfillment. In that He, even though on the eve of His crucifixion, it will lead Him to real and literal lament in the garden, will ultimately, once again, put the glory and the presence and the mission of God above His own cravings and comfort. And on the cross, become everything that we are for us. So that in the resurrection, we could become everything that He is that we could never be. And now, What is the testimony of Jesus about us that the author of Hebrews wants us to know? That he has not stopped journeying with us, but rather is doing what constantly to the Father? Mediating on your behalf. Not being overcome by our grumbling, but instead constantly mediating in the same way that He mediated for the thief on the cross or mediated for the centurions killing Him, saying they don't understand what they're doing. Father, forgive them. And in so doing, holding off the destruction that is rightfully ours. See, it's in the gospel that you are renewed with the glory and the presence and the mission of God. It's the gospel that meets your lament that leads you to worship. No one is telling you to pretend that life is easy or even that it's good at times. But they are calling you to stop exaggerating about your current circumstances, and instead dwell in what can't be exaggerated, the vastness of God's love for you. Here's what gospel people do, and I'm way over time, so I've got to just say this really quick. Here's what gospel people do. Gospel people are very careful about the rabble, right? That is that they understand that as much as they intend to influence people, they actually are far more influenced by them 
most of the time. Now, this is not a statement that says you should pull yourself away from everyone because they tend to be grumblers. But it is that you should walk into every circumstance with fellow human beings with your eyes wide open and your ears wide open and your feet firmly planted in the gospel. Because more likely than not, there's going to be opportunity for grumbling in every human interaction. And if you don't believe me, then just go to any workplace break room right now, right? Or any moment of every single day where you will find some of the most content grumblers. Because we are by nature entitled people. And we're prone that way. So be careful of the route. Be, be eyes wide open. And when you are tempted to grumble, or I would say even this, when you are tempted by religious lies to pretend that life is rosy and you shouldn't feel like life is hard or challenging and you should just put on an exterior facade that everything's great, when you're challenged by either of those things, remember the biblical value of lament. And find one or two good friends who won't judge you, but who will lament with you. But lamenting with you means also reminding you about the gospel, right? And keeping you from perspective shifting and exaggeration. You have a choice, lamentation or grumble. The third thing that gospel people do is that they infect other people with the gospel, not with their grumbling. We actually are called to infect people with something. It's called the gospel. And it should be incredibly contagious, and yet somehow it isn't. Why? Something we ought to ponder for a while. It has to do with the messenger, not the message. And then lastly, when you encounter grumbling from others, join Jesus in his mediation for them. Don't judge them. Don't get angry with them. Here's again, here's my huge failure, right? In my house, grumbling can happen on a daily basis. And a lot of times, I'm actually not the originator of it. I'm the last, the last uh, stone to, to fall or whatever, the last pin to fall, whatever the phrase is. But when I fall, it goes big, right? But my problem is, instead of mediating and speaking gospel, I go Moses. What does it mean to just intercede? instead of judging. This is what gospel people do. Man, I guess it should have been three sermons instead of one. I apologize. Let's just be honest. We're entitled people. And we grumble an awful lot. But the gospel calls us to the upward spiral of lament rather than the downward spiral of grumble. One leads to destruction. The other leads to worship. And the choice really is before us. Can I pray with you?